0: Did the Exodus actually happen? This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, author, and apologist Pat Zuckerin, who defends the Christian faith all over the world. And today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zuckerin's special guest.
1: Yes, Kevin, it's great to be back. And we have another exciting show. And we have with us once again, Dr. Eugene Merrill, a professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. And his book is one you're going to want to Actually, any book that he wrote is one you're going to want to get, whether it be a commentary, or this book here, A Kingdom of Priests And we're having a fascinating discussion on the Exodus Many skeptics deny the historicity of the Exodus But Dr. Merrill here has been presenting a pretty compelling case for the Exodus That's an, actually a historical event And that the biblical account is true So Dr. Merrill, welcome back to the show Thank you. It's good to be back. Well, like I said last week, you know, I had a, I believe in the exodus because uh, I had an exodus experience, Hebrews 101. And when I finally was uh, miraculously delivered from that class, it was a miracle I passed. Uh, walking out of that door with a C- was like the the parting of the Red Sea. You know, I went to my dorm room, Dr. Merrill, and I closed the door and I just, laid the C-minus on the altar before the Lord, and I prayed, and I said, Thank you, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from Hebrew 101, you know?
2: (laughs) Like many young men who were studying for ministry, I studied Greek first and struggled very, very hard with Greek, but then I took Hebrew and found it to be comparatively easy, and that was a way that God led me into Old Testament studies, and I've never regretted it. So our experience <laughs> wasn't exactly the same, although I struggled very, very hard with Greek. But I we're, we're talking about a different exodus, though, aren't we, And right. uh, an exodus um, that is so far not attested in secular texts. We don't have any uh, record outside the Bible of the exodus having taken place. However, what we do know from uh, the uh, period in which the Exodus took place in the 15th century B.C., around uh, 1446, what we do know of Egyptian uh, history and civilization and culture fits perfectly with the biblical account of the Exodus. In other words, there's nothing there that would uh, raise any serious problem to the Exodus having occurred precisely as the Bible describes it.
1: Right. Now, we talked uh, the last several weeks about certain facts in the book of Exodus, and one of the ones that is really disputed is the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, many people will say that uh, the term Red Sea can actually be Sea of Reeds, and so the Israelites didn't exactly cross the Red Sea they crossed the sea of reeds which at certain times of the day can be about a foot or two feet deep and that's how they were able to make the crossing what do you have to say about that Dr. Merrill? Well
2: part of that is true and part of it is not true let me address the part that's uh, true first and that is that the Hebrew word for that body of water indeed is yam suf and suf means reed so there's no question that the proper Uh, name from the Hebrew Bible itself is the Sea of Reeds, or the Reedy Sea, or something like that. Now, Red Sea uh, came to be its name thanks to the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint uh, erroneously applied the name Red when it should have applied the name Reed. It by then had been known as the Red Sea, Um, But this has led to the confusion as to the name. However, the fact that uh, it is called the Reed Sea does not necessarily presuppose that that sea is shallow. It takes its name because of the fact that uh, there are lakes, there are bodies of water between uh, Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, uh, which are uh, surrounded by reeds. Papyrus reeds. There's no papyrus left anymore, but in ancient times papyrus reeds grew along those banks. And so these bodies of water took their name, Reed Sea, from from these reeds. Now that would suggest that the Exodus did not occur through what we now know as the Red Sea, but one of those lakes to the north, And there are two or three of these lakes that are very, very wide and very, very deep. And before the building of the Suez Canal in particular, these bodies of water would have been impossible to cross, just as difficult as the crossing of the Red Sea itself.
1: Now, there are many skeptics who would say, you know, they couldn't have crossed uh, this sea with this many people. It would have taken many days. Uh, Is that correct, uh, their criticism there? Well,
2: the Bible doesn't say how long it took for them to cross, and so we cannot assume that they were required to cross uh, in just a matter of hours. We do know that the Egyptian army, once it got wind of the fact that the uh, Hebrew slaves had escaped, began to make their way toward that area. But we don't know how many days passed before they were aware that the Hebrews had gone. And so we cannot assume anything that is not stated clearly in the biblical text itself. So perhaps the uh, Israelites had several days in which they could have made this crossing. Or if not, if, it took, uh, if they had only 24 hours at their disposal, uh, if the people were properly organized and, uh, and, and disciplined and obedient to the leadership of Moses and others, then I think there's no reason practically why two million people or more could not have crossed in just a matter of hours. I've never tried to work it out in some kind of a, of a practical scenario as to the passing of time and how many people would pass by a given point. But um, I don't see anything in the text itself that precludes the possibility of that many people crossing in a relatively brief period of time. Let's say, for example, that they were a mile across. Uh, You can get an awful lot of people in a mile uh, abreast, uh, to say nothing of how many might have uh, followed them. So I I think we're just raising straw men when we uh, make the argument that uh, they couldn't have crossed. Who says they could not have? I think that would have to be demonstrated by somebody else replicating the Exodus event and I don't suppose any critic out there is uh, prepared to um, raise his rod over the Sea of Reeds and bring about another
1: Exodus I see that's a good point that you make now it says here in the Bible that Pharaoh and the Egyptians lost their entire army there in the uh, Red Sea why is it now skeptics will say why is it then that it's not recorded anywhere in Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics or in history or archaeology of of this event occurring in Egyptian history.
2: Well, first of all, I don't think we can uh, uh, can necessarily conclude that the entire army of Egypt was involved in that particular episode. There were probably some troops stationed in the Delta region uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Memphis, uh, and it was thought that uh, it wouldn't take more than uh, you know, a regiment or two, or uh, or perhaps uh, a larger group. We have no idea how many were involved, but to assume that the whole Egyptian army was uh, wiped out in the in the Red Sea is going beyond the evidence of the text itself. Um, but I, I think the the better answer to that question, in fact, I. I I think the question still would remain, why weren't uh, there records of even this many men dying in the Exodus, is that the Egyptians never boasted about their defeats. In fact, they covered them over very nicely. I think a more serious question is, why wouldn't some of the enemies of the Egyptians have pointed out this uh, disastrous defeat that the Egyptians suffered? And to that question, I can only answer, I don't know. Uh, I suspect it's because we simply don't have enough uh, textual or documentary evidence from the Hittites or other people uh, to form any any answer to that question. There may be texts found in years to come that will clearly establish the historicity of that event, but to this point, they simply haven't been found.
1: That's a good point that you bring up now. The uh, Israelites, after they crossed the Red Sea, failed to capture uh, the, I believe it's Kadesh Barnea. And uh, because uh, they did not trust the Lord, uh, they received his judgment and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. But they come to a place called Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments. Now, there's been a lot of dispute as to where exactly is Mount Sinai. We don't exactly know where it is today, but in your studies, where do you think it might be?
2: Well, the traditional location of Mount Sinai has been in the southern Sinai Peninsula, Uh, at a mountain called in the Arabic Jebel Musa to this very day. Jebel Musa meaning the mountain of Moses. And that tradition goes back at least to the 4th century A.D., back to the time of Constantine. Uh, And uh, there is located even now on the slopes of uh, Mount Sinai a monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery, which was first established in the 4th century. Now, that's... uh, A long time ago of course it's uh, nowhere near as ancient as the as the Exodus event itself but it does suggest that for nearly 2,000 years now church tradition and before that Jewish tradition had located uh, the holy mountain there at uh, Jebel Musa or Mount Sinai now there is no reason, as we read the account of the wilderness uh, journey from the Red Sea or the Reed Sea down to Sinai, we read of these different places that are mentioned, there's no reason to uh, to doubt the uh, historicity of, uh, of of the journey itself or the actuality of the places that are mentioned. However, in fairness, we have to admit that none of the places mentioned by name uh, as stopping points have been discovered, uh, but we must realize that the Israelites didn't build cities and towns. They simply
0: camped here and there, and those campsites uh, clearly would not have survived. You can get this entire series available at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat.
1: With Dr. Eugene Merrill, professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, Dr. Merrill, we're talking about Mount Sinai. There's the traditional location of Mount Sinai, but some have been mentioning an alternative uh, site, haven't they? Uh,
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, In, oh, the last eight or ten years, there has been the suggestion that Mount Sinai ought not to be located in the Sinai Peninsula at all, but ought to be located in Saudi Arabia. And, and specifically at a mountain uh, called Jebel Laos, which is not too many miles south of the Jordan-Saudi Arabian border.
1: You know, Dr. Merrill, there are some, uh, they may not have their graduate degrees in archaeology, but there have been some who have come across and stated that they have found, you know, the real Mount Sinai or found the, the bridge uh, under the Red Sea where the Israelites crossed or found the uh, remains of possibly the chariots buried at the bottom of the Red Sea. Uh, what are we need to make when guys bring up uh, those kinds of uh, real fascinating discoveries?
2: Well, I think it's helpful to point out that there are really two Red Seas, in a sense. There's the arm of the Red Sea between Egypt proper and the Sinai Peninsula. And then there is uh, another arm of the Red Sea uh, today called the Gulf of Aqaba, which um, uh, separates the Sinai Peninsula from uh, Saudi Arabia. In fact, I was over there just this summer and uh, went all the way to the Saudi border. I wish I could have gone further, but Americans are certainly not welcome in Saudi Arabia as tourists. I have seen the videos. I have done some reading in uh, the literature that you're referring to here, and I must say that there are some things that are very persuasive about this point of view. Uh, First of all, uh, the Bible itself indicates that Moses, uh, when he escaped from Egypt, uh, went to Midian, and in fact, he married a woman from Midian, the daughter of the priest of Midian, And Midian has always been in uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. It's never been located in the Sinai Peninsula. And so either Moses went to uh, Saudi Arabia, or what is now Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, lived there for uh, some 40 years, or his uh, father-in-law may have had um, flocks of sheep pastured in the Sinai Peninsula near Mount Sinai, and it may have been there that Moses spent these 40 years. So that's a that's an argument in favor of this alternative location is that that mountain, Jebel Laos, is located in what was ancient Midian. However, um, that seems to be about the only point that can be made in favor of that location. The place names that are mentioned as part of the itinerary uh, certainly do not seem to fit this alternative location those few places that can be somewhat well-identified, which still favor a location of Mount Sinai in the southern part of the Sinai uh, Peninsula. So I, I, I'm i somewhat skeptical uh, of it, although I, I must say that uh, the uh, very famous uh, scholar Frank Cross, whose um, reputation is... is it is certainly uh, very uh highly esteemed in biblical scholarship cross uh, i saw in another video uh, says that it's worth looking into and that he is somewhat convinced that these guys may be right so i think we we've not yet had the definitive answer to this but it would be well for us to be a little cautious at this point and yet to be open-minded as to the possibility that Mount Sinai indeed is located in Arabia.
1: You know, an exodus of several million people from Egypt must have had a tremendous impact on their economy, uh, on their construction, all of that. Is there any uh, evidence that there was any kind of economic uh, impact on Egypt around this time of the exodus?
2: Well, the, the um, New Kingdom period which begins at around uh, 1570 or so BC and and continues down to uh, uh, the 1100s, about 1150 BC, is one of the most glorious periods of Egyptian history. There's no question that uh, Egypt reached a period of of tremendous uh, strength and wealth and prominence, especially in international affairs. And... uh, Either date of the exodus, uh, either the early date in the uh, uh, mid-15th century, 1446, or in the 1200s, uh, both those dates are within the New Kingdom period. So you couldn't prove too much by the state of economic affairs and so forth, um, anything about the impact that uh, uh, Hebrew slaves may have uh, made on that economy. Uh, even if the exodus uh, occurred at the early period, there would have been plenty of opportunity for more Semitic slaves to have been gathered by the time of the late exodus date and uh, or slaves from elsewhere as far as that is concerned. So I don't think the economy of Egypt would have been uh, devastated by the departure of the Hebrew slaves. They could have been easily replaced.
1: Now, they come out of the 40 years uh, wandering in the desert, and they come into the promised land, and they cross the Jordan And one of the first cities. And here's where we, get, we begin to get some archaeological evidence. One of the first cities they capture is Jericho. Now, does the dating and what we have found in Jericho support the mid-15th century date of the Exodus?
2: It did, then it didn't. Now it seems to, <laughs> to do it again. And by that I mean uh, the first systematic uh, excavation of Jericho was done by a British archaeologist, John Garstang, back in the 1930s. And Garstang uh, uh, was convinced as a result of his excavation of Jericho that the city had fallen in about 1400 B.C., and he presented very strong evidence to, uh, uh, to make his case. Uh, some years later, in the 1950s and later, a, another British archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, uh, continued the excavation. And uh, Kenyon uh, uh, was skeptical about uh, Garstang's uh, interpretation of the, of the archaeological evidence, and she concluded that the uh, city was destroyed uh, somewhat later. Uh, perhaps 75 to a hundred years later that is around 1300 or so now the problem is that uh, Kenyon's um, uh, conclusion certainly gave no comfort to the late exodus date because uh, according to that date the exodus occurred some 50 or 60 years after Kenyon's date for the destruction of Jericho so it didn't help them any and it uh, certainly didn't help the early exodus date either But in uh, very recent years, uh, an evangelical archaeologist with whom I personally have worked for a number of seasons, Dr. Bryant Wood, has re-examined all of the pottery evidence and has uh, come to the conclusion that Kathleen Kenyon ignored a lot of the pottery evidence that was available to her, and that pottery evidence would uh, point clearly in the direction of Garstang's initial interpretation that Jericho had fallen at around 1400 B.C. It's a highly technical discussion that would go beyond uh, the time limits that we have here, but the bottom line is that uh, wood, on the basis of pottery and other evidence that had never been published before, I think has pointed in the direction of a 1400 bc destruction date for jericho again
1: yes what didn't kathleen kenyon uh, wasn't she digging in the poor part of the city and the pottery that she would have found would have been actually more in the wealthier part of the city that uh, she did not excavate in
2: yeah, that's exactly right uh, that's that's the bottom line sometimes we form our opinions on what is not said as much as on what is said and uh, I don't know what reason uh, she may have had for not publishing all of her material, but uh, Wood has um, examined it all now for himself. And by the way, his his PhD from the University of Toronto was in uh, the late bronze pottery. So if anybody's qualified to
1: look at material like that, it is, uh, it is Brian Wood. Folks, um, unfortunately, we're going to, We're running out of time, but I want you to know that this discussion I'm having with Dr. Merrill, he's not looking at notes here. He's just got a Bible in front of him, and all these facts are just pouring out of that brilliant mind of his there. Dr. Merrill, what are some books? I'm sure some people out there are just fascinated by what they've heard these last two weeks. What are some books you could recommend for those who want to do further study in this area? Well,
2: there are two that uh, come to mind in particular, one of which is uh, somewhat older. It's uh, about 30 years old now, and this is a work by John Bimson. This book has to do with the uh, redating the Exodus and Conquest. And Bimson, uh, a British uh, conservative, has not only dated the exodus early again, but earlier than I'm comfortable with. So we have a problem kind of on the other side of too early a date for the exodus and conquest, but at least it's a move, I think, in the right direction. The second book is by the very brilliant and celebrated British uh, uh, evangelical scholar Kenneth A. Kitchen in a book just fresh off the press which I've uh, reviewed for our seminary publication and this book is on the reliability of the Old Testament and this book is a must read in this area
1: outstanding and you can get those books on our website along with this interview and also you're going to want to get any book written by Dr. Eugene Merrill uh, one of his best-known books that we all read in seminaries the kingdom of priests a history of the Old Testament uh, gives a great overview of the Old Testament. That's, not, that's a book you're going to want to have in your library, along with some other fascinating commentaries on the mind of prophets. But anything written by Dr. Merrill, you're going to want to get.
0: We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukeran on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Sukarin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org